Welcome to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council, with your hosts, Steve Zylstra and Karen Nowitz. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites leading experts to have real conversations about what is happening in the tech sector across the state of Arizona. From regional news to innovative startups, companies, and emerging technologies, AZ TechCast covers the critical issues and economic trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. Arizona's Rural Broadband Initiative endeavors to expand broadband services in underserved rural areas across the state. The initiative envisions a future where every Arizonan, regardless of their location, is empowered by high-speed internet, breaking barriers and fostering a more inclusive and connected society. I'm Karen Nowicki, president and owner of Phoenix Business Radio X, and I'd like to welcome you to AZ TechCast, sponsored by Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. And this month, we are looking forward to having a round, well-rounded conversation with our panel of guests. And I hope you'll help me welcome them right now. We have Kelly LeBlanc, Chief Marketing and Product Officer, IP Infusion. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, everyone. Nice to meet you. So happy to have you. And, I, and you're in, uh, did you say Santa Clara, California? That's correct. Well, yes. We appreciate you making time for us today. And we also have Sandeep Bomek, Vice President of Infrastructure and State Broadband Director with Arizona Commerce Authority, one of our studio sponsors for this broadcast as well. Welcome, Sandeep. Thank you, Karen. Uh, my name is Sandeep Bomek, State Broadband Director here at Arizona Commerce Authority. I oversee the broadband expansion and digital equity portfolio here in the state. And it's been how long that you've been with Arizona Commerce Authority in that role? I started as assistant broadband director almost one and a half year ago and then got promoted last year um, right before our state mapping challenge, which we'll talk about a little bit more later on, which resulted in another $220 million extra funding we got. So promoted as a broadband director at that time frame. Fantastic. And Kelly, how about for you before we introduce you to Seth and Steve over here with me as well? How long have you been with your organization? Well, I've been here for about one and a half years. And so I've been overseeing all of the marketing and product management for IP Infusion. And we've been in business for about 25 years now as a networking software vendor specializing in open networking products. Okay, we brought the right team today to have this conversation. And in the studio with Steve and I is Steph Holler. He is the Director of Sales with Western Region EPS Global. Welcome, Seth. Thank you. So, yeah, EPS Global is a Tier 1 distributor. We're really specialized in the white box open networking space. So IP Infusion is one of our partners uh, for the software. And then we put their software on hardware and help customers kind of put this all together. Where this really, where the rubber meets the road here is in this rural broadband initiative, how to help customers get product at a much lower price, but it's still tier one product. And then we help them put it all together. There's a lot of fear in doing this, moving away from some of the tier one brands moving into this space. We help them get over that fear. So I'm a 25-year resident of Arizona, a proud resident, a, uh, you know, property owner here. And the rural broadband thing to me is, you know, how do we spend this money? How do we work with Sandeep and the internet service providers to get this money so they can provide this broadband that really is by law needs to be provided but they could do it in a more economical way than they've done it before. Yeah. And how long have you been in your role? 
So I've been at EPS for 10 years. It's actually the longest company I've ever I worked for. I thought you were going to say year and a half. No, <laughs> no, 10 years. Um, we're actually headquartered in Dublin, Ireland. Founded in 1999. The guys that founded it still run it. My boss opened the shop here. His name's Alan Fagan. He opened shop here in 2009. I had met him several years before. I was in a transition phase in 2013, and he reached out, and we got together, and I started running the West, and... Yeah, when we first started, we're a transceiver distributor. It's a company called Finisar, which is the number one manufacturer of transceivers. And then we moved into this disaggregated white box networking space to deliver a product, again, that is third of the cost, but you're getting the same quality working with our partners like IP Infusion for the software piece of it. And then what we're doing, again, is we're putting all together and delivering a solution. So we're really a value-added distributor. And, yeah. and you would know of some other big distributors here in the Valley. I worked for them as well at one point. This is much more focused. Very good. Yep. Very good. Well, I love the, the brief introductions, and we'll make sure that we hear more from each of you as we get engaged in this conversation. And we also need to hear from Steve Zalstra, our co-host. Tell us a little bit about you and Arizona Technology Council. Sure. Well, I'm president and CEO of the Arizona Technology Council and our foundation uh, called the SciTech Institute. Um, I guess I've been in Arizona... 33 years in total, two different times, but 33 years. I've been at the Arizona Tech Council for 16 years as president and CEO. A little bit about the Tech Council. We're a statewide organization. We have offices in Phoenix and Tucson. We're a trade association that serves science and technology-based uh, enterprises. We do public policy advocacy, so we're sort of the voice and the face of the tech industry. We do between 100 and 150 events a year, which is like three a week. Uh, we do. We have lots of publications, a magazine, newsletter, two podcasts, and many other reports. And uh, we negotiate lower-cost products and services uh, for our members. So we run an association health plan. We run a 401k program. And we're organized around committees. We have 13 standing committees. Mm -hmm. And this conversation today is important for Arizona because why? Well, I'm throwing that out to all of you. Why is this such an important conversation for all Arizonans? So I'll, I'll let Sandy talk in a second. But the reality is there's the law had changed so that we must provide Internet to everybody in what's called 100 over 100. So 100 meg up, 100 meg down. For example, at home, I've got gigabit. I've got Cox gigabit. So I have synchronous one gig up and down. It's great. We've, I live in a regular, I'm in Chandler, right? It's easy to get me internet service. The problem is when you get out into the reses and some of the more rural areas, there, there's a, a real challenge in physically getting it out there. And there's a significant cost in getting it out there. But it's the law. You got to do it, right? So you have these internet service providers trying to figure this out. And how do they do it, again, economically, by the law, working with Sandeep's team to make sure that part's being done as well. So there's a there's construction, there's finance, there's all kinds of issues that aren't easily resolved. And it's all based on RFQs. You have to like submit and then prove you're going to do it. And that's where Sandeep gets involved. Let me just add that um, it was really COVID that perpetuated these kinds of initiatives in that, as we know, we were all working from home, so the, demand, the need for broadband was uh, much more important. Uh, we had uh, 100,000 or more kids who could not essentially participate in school because they either yep. didn't have a laptop or they didn't have uh, broadband access. And uh, 
So the entire country realized this was a major issue. So Arizona's been investing in it, and uh, the federal government's been investing in it, and Sandeep is managing all that. And from your perspective, Kelly and Sandeep, where do you see that this is of critical importance to all Arizonans? I can say from my perspective as a networking software vendor, we feel that this is an extremely important program because it should help to address and solve these broader access programs that the open market might be slow to be able to address right now. So really appreciative of this initiative. So Karen, the, the way I see the broadband industry, as, as Steve mentioned, it, it evolved. Um, so Arizona Broadband Office, it's, it's fairly new. We established the office in 2019. Folks, the leadership team at Arizona Commerce Authority realized that how important it is to have broadband connectivity in rural Arizona because we are the de facto institute which bring business to the state. From that need, we founded Broadband uh, Office as part of Arizona Commerce Authority. So from 20, 2019 to 2020 end or 2021 end, broadband, we basically partnered up as a director position. We basically partnered up with the private industry that how we can expand broadband here in Arizona. The whole thing changed right after COVID when government, federal government started investing money. So the first tranche of money coming came here at Arizona when we received $190 million from the capital funding project. And then governor uh, uh, allocated $100 million for broadband expansion. Right around the same time, I came on board as an assistant broadband director, played an instrumental role to distribute that $100 million. And now, as Seth mentioned, the IIJA, it's a law, so we have to cover all the 318,000 unserved and underserved households here in Arizona. So last year we received, um, this year we got a confirmation that we are going to get $993 million in funding for BID uh, to cover this 318,000. So it's rapidly went from a advocacy to an actual implementation. And my background uh, came in, I, I, I had a degree in uh, bachelor's and master's degree in telecommunication and electrical engineering focused, uh, worked in telecommunication company. I worked all, this is my first government job, quote unquote, outside of military. So I worked it for AT&T, Verizon, went back to AT&T. Last position was basically heading AT&T's E911 project, the first net project here in Arizona. So coming from the networking background, I completely, it's, it's a, this is actually like my own group of people, like the background set came from or Kelly came from. This is exactly what I did for vendors, selecting product and deploying it for our E911 project. So yeah, so it's, it's all coming together. The amount of finance experience I had, the amount of engineering experience I had, we will go, we'll go through a RFP process. So this is all coming together right now as we are talking a massive amount of funding and also maintaining the network standard, which is given by federal government. So, Sandeep, we talked early on about the Rural Broadband Initiative. Can you give us some details about uh, what that initiative is and anyone else who has uh, input into that? And, by the way, our listeners may not know what IIJA is, so it would be great if you could define that for them. Absolutely, absolutely. So two major investment on the rural broadband. And uh, when I say rural broadband, there are rural places here in Maricopa County too. There are rural places in Penal County. So Arizona's geography is a little bit different. 
So to start with, I would say the IIJA, it's a, it's a bill. It's signed by uh, Biden administration. So basically, which allocated $43 billion for high-speed broadband expansion here in the, in the country. That includes all 50 states and U.S. territories. The way this money was divided between the state based on how many unserved and underserved locations we have here in every single state. So the state received from somewhere between $3 billion to $1 billion, in some cases less than like $250 million. It all depends how many served and unserved locations you have. So based on the prediction from last year, from our office, different nonprofit organizations and uh, different for-profit consulting companies, we are supposed to receive somewhere between 720 to 780. However, FCC gave us an opportunity to challenge the state broadband map, and we're able to add 60,000 more addresses. That added another $220 million and ended up with $993 million in funding. Um, So from my point of view, what I think that when it comes to the broadband funding and the addresses we have here in the state, the KPI is connecting all these 318,000 households with a with a uh, with a network standard which is 100 by 20 100 mbps download and 20 mbps upload it was little different than 100 by 100 symmetrical which was implemented through capital funding project the 100 million dollar investment we did but with this total funding of almost one point. So the bead funding has a 25% matching on top of that too. So with $1.25 billion investment here in the state and another $100 million investment we did, we are hoping to cover all the Arizona households, including all the rural areas and the tribal households with high-speed broadband connectivity. That's the target for next few years. And right now we are going through the planning process, but before we go explore what we are doing on the planning process, I would like to um, see if Kelly and uh, Seth wants to add anything on that. Yeah, one one quick question. Um, BEAD, is that an acronym for something? Yes, it's actually Broadband Equity Access and Deployment. It's It's a very cool name. Sometimes it creates a lot of confusion. So when I'm talking to our ISPs, sometimes we say, wait, are you going to bead on bead? So it creates a lot of confusion. So we are making confusion be- between BID and versus BEAD. So trying to resolve that in a different state. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. You talk, you hear these numbers, right? $1.25 billion. Oh my God, well, that should be easy to get broadband access to everybody that needs it. But it, and oh, it's only 318,000 homes. There, in some areas, it could cost $10,000 per home to get broadband internet there because of where it is, right? You have to run fiber from point A to point B. And it's, again, I talked about construction. In some cases, you're blasting through a mountain, right? To be able to do it via radio wave is not that simple either. It's, it's very expensive kind of stuff to do it. So because it it needs to be done, we want to make sure that as a state and, and even in the nation, we're spending the money the best way out, Right. So clearly you have these tier one companies that the ISPs, internet service providers, have been using for a long time. You have a couple of problems going on. One, availability is an issue, right? You're still having a hard time. The, the tier ones are servicing the hyperscalers, the, the metas, the apples, those guys, right? So you have an availability problem. You have a cost problem. What, what we figured out over the last 10 years is how to solve that problem using, again, the same tier one equipment and software to put a solution together, to go to an ISP and go, it's okay. We, we got you. We can get you there, right? And 
for a lot less so you can stretch it out farther. And that's really what it's about. It's using those dollars the best you can to service these 318,000 homes. To Steve's point, you had kids that could not do their homework. They were literally having to drive 20, 30 miles somewhere to get an internet connection to do their homework, right? right? That's the problem we have to solve. So there's a chasm that has to get crossed from branded to, to white box, right? Companies like IP Infusion, they provide a lot of support, front-end support. We do a lot of pre-sale support, make sure the ISPs are getting the right boxes. We work with a couple different vendors to make sure that the, the technology is there at the right pricing. And then we work with companies like IP Infusion, and then we put it all together. So I, I was at a show a couple weeks ago called Wispapalooza. <laughs> kind of a funny name for a show. Wisps are wireless internet service providers. And they're having the same problem too, by the way. I had a, a gentleman walk up to me. He's like, I just don't know what to do. I, how do I do this? My engineers are telling me I have to, but I don't know how to do it. I'm like, call me on Monday and we'll start working with you and we'll tell you how to do it, right? Get the mystery out of it, the fear out of it, so these dollars can be spent properly, right? And then they can help Sandeep and, and the, all these homes get the service that they need. You have to think about internet now is more like a utility, right? Yeah. When you when you walk up to your faucet and you you just expect water to come out. When you go in your house and hit the switch, you expect the lights to come on, right? When you log on at home, you expect the internet to be there and you expect it to be good enough to do what you needed to do, right? Not everybody needs 30 connected devices and 4K and all that stuff, but they certainly need to get on and be able to get email and do all the things they need to do. Quick quick follow-up for you. So um, you referred to, you know, the, the terrain we have in in Arizona, the very remote places mm -hmm. where people live, and the exceptional costs associated with bringing the internet. In those specific situations, why wouldn't we use Starlink? It's a great question. So again, Starlink is not that economical either. Like the military uses Starlink, right? It's Starlink is great for a point-to-point, -point, very small use of, hey, I need to communicate real quick. It's kind of a burst technology, right? Versus and always on, again, I go put my, my plug into my wall and I have electricity, right? So in some cases, you don't have a choice. There's no other way to get it there. But again, it's expensive to set it up too. Right. Thank you. And Kelly, um, anything to add to that? Yeah, in fact, I wanted to build a little bit out on your point, Steve, because as you mentioned, this problem which compounded during the pandemic that's one of the reasons why we've had the great pleasure to work with Seth and EPS during this time, because our value proposition is time to market in addition to cost effectiveness. So not only do we need to make sure that everyone has internet connection in their home, but we need to make sure they have it now. We can't have kids waiting on delay to do their homework. So what was happening at this time is that communities were calling the traditional vendors and being told that they had to wait 18 months to two years to get their equipment, and that's just not going to work. So we worked very closely with EPS Global to make sure that there was a diversified supply chain so we could provide our software on a variety and choice of hardware that EPS Global also offered, and we could reduce the time to market from 18 months to two years to, in some cases, one to two days. So, you know, we were really proud of this, and that's what helped us to get our name out during these times, even more so than before, simply because we're giving people access now. Yeah, I mean, the supply chain shortage revealed a lot of challenges, right? Not everybody had 100% supply chain 
shortages. It it was very focused in the Broadcom chipset, things like that. That and again, the tier ones were were literally buying more than they needed. Broadcom at one point was buying more capacity than they could get because of the automotive things. So it was this this is kind of weird trifecta of things going on, right? The auto, the because of a lot of the money that was flowing into homes, they were going out buying cars, and the cars now need you know, a hundred chips in them too, right? And so then Broadcom was used to buying, you know, getting their chips done three months at a time. And all of a sudden the automotive industry is booking out two years at a time. There's no capacity, which hence why we have this wonderful factory going up, right? In in, in Northern or uh, Western Valley here. So, and, and plus the stuff that's going on in Intel. I mean, all that's very impactful for the future, what's happening. It's great to see it happening here. But it, at the same time, we were able to work with these other manufacturers and go, well, I need product. And one of the things that we do a little bit different than other distributors is we'll put it on the shelf, right? To, to give that more closer to just-in-time. I think, Kelly, we had one we worked with where customer called up. I think from the time the first phone call happened to the time the full deployment was three months. That's right. Right? And that was during the pandemic with a complete chip shortage yeah. because we made investments and put the product on the shelf and work with the right hardware partners and partners like IP Infusion to get it done, right? So it's, we're on the not complete other side of it now, right? We, we're still, people don't understand, we still are in a little bit of a chip shortage. It's still happening. Not as bad. Lead times and some stuff is starting to push out because demand is starting to happen again. And so we're going to see a little bit of a crunch. But again, we're going to buy our way into solving the problem by putting the parts on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got what? Kelly, probably 20 or 30 engagements on a regular yes. basis. Yes, and we've publicly announced around 14 of them already this year. Yeah, there you go. So, yes. So so uh, regarding the initiative, um, the, the rural broadband initiative, what's the ultimate impact on Arizona and especially on um, the the tribal lands uh, where our indigenous uh people live because those are some of the most remote places, um, underserved areas. And of course they all need internet as well. Sure. I mean, I, I just want to, uh, like add what, um, Seth said and Kelly mentioned to go back to the financial study, as, as I told you all that we are going through a planning process. So the whole bead funding has three different milestones. One was the first one was five-year action plan and then the initial plan and the final plan. So the five-year action plan for the state of Arizona was due in August. So basically talks about what's the situation of broadband here in the state. If we made any investment, if we have any experience deploying broadband infrastructure before, basically a current status of state broadband office and what should be our engagement plan, et cetera, et cetera. The initial plan is more in-depth. We recently published the initial plan, volume one, which describes how the communities can submit a challenge against the state to the state that if we are missing any addresses or any broadband service availability data in their community, and we can correct that to make sure there are no households we are leaving behind. So with that process, probably we'll add few few more thousand households with that 318. And the volume two, which is actually coming online next week, most probably, that will talk about sub-grantee selection process, the technology, the, the open technology we are talking about. And, and, and this is a public platform, so I would like to clarify one debate. And that is like, 
we are talking about open technology, what Seth is working on or Kelly is working on, the white box technology. This is not same as open access fiber network. It's it's a controversial topic. So I just wanted to make sure these are not same thing for our audiences. Right, right. Um, and, and, uh, and going forward, the initial plan will have all type of technology we are going to support. Now, I, I, this is connected, so I would like to mention this, that supply chain is definitely going to be an issue, even though we are going to house the largest semiconductor factory in the world in our state, this is going to be an ongoing issue. And on top of that, makes things more complicated. Of course, we have Buy American Act. The 55% of the equipment need to be manufactured and basically assembled together here in U.S., and at the same time, when all the states are investing all this $43 billion, it's going to be a race between the equipment company versus ISP. This is, this is definitely going to be a challenge. So we mentioned that and actually talked about a few solutions that how we can work as a state broadband office with private sector to mitigate that situation. So I would invite everyone to have a look at uh, the volume two, and it's open for public comment for 30 days. As an ISP, as an industry, you can provide your feedback. And also we hold monthly roundtable um, to talk about these issues with the industry, which include ISPs and equipment manufacturers. So I we, we discuss about this thing and took a live feedback from the industry. Going back to the cost, what Seth mentioned that there might be households which might need $10,000 to connect. Steve, we are going through a financial analytics right now, how to deploy broadband using this billion dollar in this 318,000 household. We found household which needs approximately $300,000 to connect. So there is no yeah. way we'll be doing fiber there. Um, of course, fiber is a preferred choice, but what we see ourselves doing, probably a mix of technologies, including 70% probably fiber, 25% fixed wireless, and 5% satellite. As of right now, we talked about the Starlink. You mentioned a very great point. The Starlink is the only company. It's, an, it's not a reliable broadband delivery. Satellite, as per the definition from Department of Commerce, is not a reliable broadband delivery. But law says that we have to cover all these households. So there will be 4,000, 5,000 households, probably a little bit more than that here in the state. And a lot of them probably going to be in the tribal land. Uh, we have to go with the satellite. And as of right now, today, the 120 megabyte, um, 120 Mbps download and upload speed can only be fulfilled by Starlink. There is no other company out there who can meet this requirement. So we are having discussion with the Starlink, actually all the broadband office. They are changing their business model a little bit too, because this is a good way to connect the community. So as per our development with them and all the broadband office, they're introducing a low cost plan for the community. Their current plan is right now 220 Mbps and 25 Mbps download with $120. So they are trying to introduce something which can meet the ACP requirement, which provides the tribal household $75 discount from their bill and regular household outside of tribe $30. And they recently uh, got approved for the ACP by federal government. So definitely that plays a vital role. Uh, the challenge in front of us, uh, we have, the, 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 as a private company, Starlink or any other satellite company have to deploy a massive amount of ground station. And that's the challenge ahead of us. However, I would say that our state is in a little bit better situation because we are one of the few states who deployed a uh, open access, non-discriminatory middle mile network on our state 
Department of Transportation right of way. So we spend it approximately close to half a billion dollars. And we have a middle mile access on I-17, I-19, and I-40 is going construction next month. So this access will make sure if there is a uh, space needed to deploy this ground station, because these are basically ginormous in size, they can go to rural areas and they will still have this backbone middle mile fiber connected to them. So there are a lot of steps has been taken, which is being fruitful right now during the lead deployment process. Uh, and the tribal um, entities are going to be one of the beneficiary out of this all initiative we are taking right now. And a tribes, tribal broadband is a priority for Arizona Commerce Authority. And I would like to highlight that it's a one of the major priority, overall broadband and tribal broadband for Governor Hobbs. So we are definitely uh, taking that in a, in a different direction. And of course, not to mention the tribal data sovereignty. Just a follow-up yeah. comment uh, to something Sandeep said about supply chain. Depending on whose data you believe, only between 12 and 17% of semiconductors today are, are manufactured in the United States. So when you have this Buy America requirement, and a fairly small number of semiconductors are manufactured in the U.S. That leads to the supply chain issue. Now, TSMC and Intel are building new facilities that will add to capacity. There are other facilities being built around the United States and Texas and Idaho and New York, but we've got a long way to go. The country's goal is to get back to where we once were, which is about 37% of the world's semiconductors to be manufactured here in the U.S. And about how far off do you anticipate that we are back to that percentage? It's a long time. It's a yeah. long time. Yeah. Years. Yeah. Years, years. years. Yeah, years yeah, 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 yeah. Years and years. Yeah. Yeah. De- like decade kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Decades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, look, the, the the great thing about it is we are focused on it and headed that way and and trying to pull down our reliance on some of the overseas stuff, right? You know, we're seeing a lot of shift back to Mexico, mm-hmm. right? So what, what was called for a brief time, onshoring. Now nearshoring. Right? Now nearshoring. Right? <laughs> right. So we're starting to see more of that. Um, some of the, the products that I'm getting, um, I've got a couple of my suppliers on, on like, they're called direct attach cables, where I'm buying primarily out of uh, Mexico now, right? So I can bring them over here for, for a lot myriad of reasons. One, they can build them faster. They can get them to me faster. Obviously, no tariffs, all that kind of stuff. So everybody kind of benefits up and down the food chain. But, yeah, this is going to be a problem for a while. I mean, we we lost focus on it, right, and due primarily to, to a cost sensitivity issue, right? Everybody yeah. wanted an iPhone for free, okay? <laughs> right? right? We wanted our, our TV. Those of us who still have a TV on the wall, right, we wanted it at a lower cost. So, you know, there's going to be some pain there in that too, right? We're going to have to kind of adjust our, our standard to what products are worth to buy them. But I think you're already seeing that, right? You're starting to see, you know, yeah, there's inflation, but I think we're starting to accept that certain products cost a little more now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I mean, it, there's, they have more value to them anyway, mm-hmm. right? At the same time, you have some of these manufacturers in, in the space that we're working on or with that their stuff is really expensive. And the stuff that goes in the box it's really not that different than the stuff. It's matter of fact, it's designed and built in some of the same factories, right? So it's tier one equipment. If you take the lid off, it looks the same, right? But you're not getting that name. So the question is, do you have to have that name? And in this initiative where you need to maximize your spend, not necessarily. As long as the equipment is is has the right support, is the right technology, and can perform what it needs to do, 
Why are you spending that much? It's reliable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Shall we go to our little commercial Sounds before good. we move sure. on? All right, let's do that. We want to have an opportunity to thank Arizona Commerce Authority, who is AZ TechCast 2023 Innovation Sponsor. So we'd like to take a moment and hear from them. Our streamlined pro-business approach helps you achieve more by putting less between you and future success. Less red tape. Lower taxes. Less distance separating you from the tech leaders of tomorrow. This innovative ecosystem will supply your business with tools and resources to compete in the 21st century and beyond. But your future is more than just business success. In Arizona, the lifestyle you want is at your fingertips. Explore cities known for their Southwest heritage and modern vision. Enjoy beautiful scenery and endless outdoor activities on land, water, or snow. And if you're looking for a little friendly competition, we've got plenty of teams to choose from. With constant sunshine, vibrant culture, and natural wonder, Arizona provides a style of living that's entirely unique. People from all over the world call our state home. From student leaders who fill the classrooms of our top-ranked universities to a skilled and abundant workforce that's ready for what's next. To the neighbors, friends, and peers we interact with daily, Arizonans are united by a pioneering spirit that moves us forward. So as you look to the future, know that it's filled with the perfect balance of innovation and high-quality living that makes life better here. What do you think, Sandeep? That's your crew. I know. It's, it's great, actually. I didn't see this before. So it's, well, this is definitely, we're happy to share know. it with you. Fantastic. Yeah, mind-catching. Yeah. I always say every episode, it makes me love being in Arizona, and I've been here since 1979. So I, I, I've, got, uh, I've got a lot of joy in being here. Before we go on to the next set of questions, I, as the, um, the little commercial was playing for Arizona Commerce Authority, I'm kind of thinking back to the things that Seth and Steve just said before our break. How much of this is education? How, how much, how important is education to our rural areas and to the tribal nation as we're doing this? Because obviously this is a, a long, a long-term fix. It can be expensive. Some of the services are going to be a little varied and, and different because of where people are. Whose responsibility is it to educate and how is that done? And how much of it is not only education, but also maybe a little bit of uh, marketing and PR too? You know, some of it is just, it's it's awareness. It's, it's, I don't know, you know, education is is one of the words, right? But it's really awareness okay. that that these this other way of doing it is okay, right? That you will be taken care of. The fear, like, and again, you know, I go back to the guy that I talked to. The fear in his eyes of I, my engineers are telling me I need to do this, but I just I just don't know what to do, right? Is I think Kelly and her team do a great job of marketing. You know what they're doing, and we do marketing. Our CMO Kira's in in Ireland. She was just here for our sales conference this week. We do a great job of that and digital content creation. But it's just making sure that the marketplace, specifically the ISPs, know that there is an alternative and that there is a better way of skinning this cat, right, and and a better mousetrap, and that there's somebody there that's going to help them. Right, they're used to spending these big dollars because they get this big blanket of warmest. And we know that there's CIOs and CTOs out there that they want to sleep at night, and and they're not going to sleep at night if they're worried about their network going down, 
right? We just can't have that. I mean, that's, again, it's utility now. So it's it's as much education as is awareness campaigns of, hey, guys, there's another way to do this. Okay. Uh, if I could just ask, and were you also thinking about the individuals? I, I in am these, thinking. That it, I'm the recipient, right? I'm the mom. I'm the dad of the kid who is in high school and and trying to find a way to have my kids succeed, either in my rural area or maybe go to, you know, higher education somewhere else. And and if we don't have that infrastructure, I'm wondering as just a, a community member, as a parent, or even somebody who's who's working remotely, how independent is it as I continue to serve my own local community? Yeah. So, Ken, I, I think I, from an Arizona State broadband perspective, I wouldn't, we, we normally think it from a partnership standpoint. So for the rural community, I wouldn't say it's more education. COVID taught us everything, basically what we need. The question is how we get that. One of the portfolio we manage, and we're also leading on that, is the digital equity portfolio. When we talk about infrastructure without digital equity, it's basically a highway without any kind of exit sign. So you don't know where to get on, where to get off. So from our standpoint, from our office's standpoint, the state of Arizona received actually a million dollar and we hired a consultant and we're also developing the same digital equity statewide plan, which will be published on our website. That lays out our vision for next 10 years, that how we will promote, not only promote how we will fund the um, telemedicine program here in the state, job, workforce development program here in the state, the distance learning program here in the state. Uh, There are a lot of great projects in a very small scale going on in our rural communities. Libraries are one of the biggest impact. They have the biggest impact in telemedicine, distance learning providing the community anchor institute service with high-speed broadband. So libraries are one of our great partner in this process. But all of them are kind of, the project is stalled in some cases because there is not enough funding. So the IIJ also allocated $2.43 billion for digital equity funding, which will get distributed next year. So when we are talking about infrastructure education, we are holding monthly calls with the tribes, with the rural government, with the local government, counties, cities, our partners as an ISP, taking their feedback into the process. Our plan is data-driven. Basically, the survey we received from them was reflected into the plan. So it's all the partnership we are building and we'll keep building next year before even we deploy a single amount of dollar through bid funding. As far as our communities, our local government, our stakeholders are not comfortable. There is no money going out. That's our thought from our process that we have to all come into one agreement that we are ready. We are ready to intake this project, not to mention permitting is a big issue when it comes to broadband infrastructure deployment, working with local government on that too. But we think it from a stakeholder engagement and partnership project. Our state agencies, they have great program. We just need to partner up with them and make sure it's fulfilling the broadband and digital equity needs. DES has program where they help seniors to sign up for the benefit. See, these are all isolated program, what a state broadband office is trying to bring them together. And that's our target or that's our mission going forward. Not only deploy the infrastructure, but also bring the digital equity piece of it to make sure that people know how to use the internet in an effective and safely manner. Perfect. Can you briefly tell us how your three organizations work together and what the role of each one is to another? Yes. So one of the things that a networking software company does is provide the glue that makes everything stick together. 
So one of the key reasons we've been working with EPS Global for so many years now is that they provide a multitude of offerings and we provide the software glue to make it run in many different cases. So when you look at the initiative that you're rolling out in Arizona, one thing is for certain, there's no single vendor in any one of these networks. It's an interoperability between many, many vendors. And so what we bring to the table is allowing all of these vendors to work together with a single software glue. Very good. Well said. Yeah. Seth? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're the hardware guy, but we're the value added hardware guy. So we do this pre-sales support piece where we ask the customer, you know, what protocols, what are you trying to do? Uh, we've got a, a, our director of technical engineering. He actually came from one of the largest switch manufacturers in the world. I recruited him over about eight years ago. It's part of our secret sauce. Mm-hmm. And and that we spent a lot of time with with the ISPs going, okay, what, do you, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? And once we get that protocol stack, we can verify that IP Infusion is the right software. And then we start talking about the hardware. And it's not just even the switch, right? We get to the optics. We get to the cables. We get to figure out exactly what they need. So they get a almost a tier one experience but at the tier three to tier four pricing so they can leverage more money to, to service more of these customers. Mm-hmm. And Sandeep? Well, I, I think the partnership between the state broadband office and, and, and the private sector is more important than ever. As Seth mentioned that, that's the hardware company right there. And another challenge we are definitely facing right now, we have definitely some glo- uh, nationwide ISPs here in Arizona. However, we have... Overall, small and big, 72 ISPs. Out of that, four or five is nationwide. Everything else is like little mom and pop shop. A lot of them are wireless internet service provider. The competition they are going to face during this bid funding, they cannot compete with the, with the big ISPs. They are basically going to get wiped out. So, of course, from our workforce and diversified workforce perspective, we are making sure they can survive this whole bid funding. Uh, one of the approach we are taking a little bit different, um, probably set up a purchasing co-op where the industry and the ISPs can basically meet. We're not forcing anyone through buying through that purchasing co-op, but I think it's really helpful. The, the way uh, Seth just mentioned his personal experience working with the ISP owner uh, to survive and what they need. This is, this is true for all across the country, not only here in Arizona. So we have a small ISPs who need direction, who need help. Uh, we, we, as a state broadband office, we set up a technical assistance team, and I'm leading that technical assistance team because of my background in telecommunication. And there are small ISPs, they're worried from all the way from the equipment to fiber because they cannot buy the fiber because they don't have that kind of capital sitting so that they can buy a massive amount of fiber and put it on the shelf. So there are a lot of work need to be done. So I can see a clear partnership between IP Fusion and EPS Global and companies like that need to work closely with broadband office to fill in that gaps, not only on the supply chain, but create the equal opportunity for big ISPs, small ISPs and mid-sized ISPs. And I see that open network plays a vital role in that because the software itself can be very, very costly going forward when it comes to upgrade, when it comes to changing technology from one platform to another platform. And I worked in VRAN project before virtual RAN for AT&T and Verizon. And I know it's it's doable. It's possible. It's not something we are just thinking or in a research phase. I mean, I think the biggest example I can use that 
in, in this space, not in broadband space, but in the equipment space is Red Hat Linux. That company is surviving for the last 25 years. It's all open access. They provide cybersecurity. It's all open access. So if that can survive, I think we can we can do the exact same thing in the connectivity and telecom space. So if, for our listeners, ISP means Internet Service Provider. Service Provider. Right, right. So, I mean, that's a great analogy he just used the Red Hat thing. So I come from originally from the server space, doing server design and server deployments for like a meta, let's say it's a medical imaging company, right? And so you had a Linux kernel. These weren't Microsoft specific boxes because, you know, nobody wanted to see the blue screen, right? So there were Linux boxes. So Red Hat back in the day was one of the big companies that wrapped services and support around Linux so really, it was the same thing where, where we're at today is in the just what we call the disaggregated space, right? So I have a switch from company X. I've got Kelly software. It's got to get put together. Somebody's got to support it. So it's the exact. It's like rinse and repeat. We're back in the same space we were in the early 2000s. Red Hat's are the, the perfect example because not only did they survive, but they're the ones that got bought by the big guy, right? Big IBM guy for a big dollar amount. And so, you know, people want to be there again. It, it, but it took 25 years, right? The white box space, the disaggregated space is about, really about 12 years old right now. So it's still kind of young, right? It's not, it's not reached its full maturity. Now, IP Infusion's been around for 25 years, right, Kelly? That's right. And, and IP Infusion was writing software for some of the bigger guys, some of the backbone pieces, right? And at one point, about 13 years ago, I think they went, hey, we can, we can move this into this white box thing, right? This is this is becoming a thing now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's had its little ups and downs, but it's it's pretty full force now. The biggest fear everybody had, and that's what Red Hat did and what IP Infusion is doing, is the support, right? Is how who do I call? And somebody needs to pick up that one number because there's a problem, right? That's way better than it ever was, right? If you go back to even 2013, 2014, it was a little, little dicey. But now the hardware's baked, the software's baked, now we just got to know which one to put together for the customer and move on forward. So, Karen, I've been hogging the mic. So. I don't know that you have been. I, this has been. <laughs> we've. It's nice when we have a conversation and our panelists just really just run in the direction that we want to go. We only have about twelve minutes left, and we have several questions that Leslie was so kind to prepare for us. So, to make sure we got get them all in, have we covered how open networking provide an alternative to legacy equipment for broadband services? Have we covered that completely? I think so. Kelly? Yeah. The exchange on this has been very good from all the parties. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. So what experience, uh, what is the experience of your service provider customers who select open networking to deliver their broadband services? Kelly, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, I'll take the first step. So what we want to make sure, and this is really important, is that they have the same experience or better than they would have with the traditional or closed system vendor. And on our side, so coming from the software perspective, what needs to happen is it needs to be easy to use. So we've taken great steps to make sure that when they install the software, it runs in a very similar way that they're used to. So if you if you take a Cisco or a Juniper example, if you've been using those vendors for a long time, our software will be very easy to use because we've designed it to be a similar experience. So Sandeep would appreciate this, Kelly. It's see a lot. Right. And so, so yeah. he's going, yeah, great. So it looks just like the tier one guys. Right. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Kelly. Sorry. Yeah. CLI's click command line interface. That's the first step. The second step is performance. So 
the good news, you know, in the early days, as Seth was mentioning, you know, this has been going on for over a decade now. And in the early days, there was not performance parity. But thanks to the latest chipsets from the Silicon Valley vendors, we now have performance parity, um, be it a legacy or a traditional vendor or a white box with software, you can have similar performance. Of course, support, you need to, what, what we like to say is um, one back to pat. So you can call us and we will take care of the entire equation for support. And as EPS Global working with us, they're a perfect vendor to talk to about this. And then finally, just making sure that they have support resource in terms of attack or other organization that they can call at any time, 24 by 7. Yeah, so as you know, Kelly mentioned, right, so we're, we're dealing with multiple vendors on the hardware side. And in, even in any given network, and even in the white box space, there's going to be multiple vendors right? Because you're going to need like a cell site gateway or a router, and then you're going to need a switch. So we're going to help put it all together with the optics, the cables, the whole bit, turn it into a recipe. And then what happens is because it's got IPI software on it, when there's an issue, they're going to call the 1-800 number. IPI is going to pick it up. They're going to do the first level diagnosis. If there is a hardware problem, then they'll come get, IPI will come get us. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go work with the vendors and the manufacturers to solve that problem. Typically, it's not super complicated on the hardware side. It's fans and power supplies and stuff. And we keep spares for that kind of thing, right? So we can overnight parts. We're, we're, our warehouse is in Indianapolis. That's where we integrate everything as well. So you can get stuff pretty where, pretty much anywhere in the country relatively quick, right? And then we also have a, a warehouse in Ireland. And so we've replicated everything that we're doing here. We're actually doing overseas, too, because they have the same issues, yeah, right? Of course they do. Sandeep, did... Were you able to say everything you wanted to about the bead funding planning? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think we covered the bead pretty well. But on top of what Seth and Kelly just mentioned, I, I would like to give this like, two examples. So, uh, uh, Steve, we talked about this. You know my background. I was involved in multiple startups in Tucson. Uh, one of them was Antenna Startup. So innovation comes within, so we can be a little bit creative when it comes to how to cover this unserved and underserved area, a little bit non-traditional way compared to any other state. But also at the same time, I would use a real life example. So I'm involved with the broadband space before even COVID. So we ran a small nonprofit and I was the chief technology officer for that nonprofit, basically deploying open access network in South Phoenix for, for the kids who did not have any kind of connectivity. It was all donated ubiquity equipment and we flushed them and we wrote a protocol called Batman protocol. It's an open access protocol to make sure that we are not only providing them some kind of connectivity, we're also maintaining the privacy. Privacy is a big concern and it will be a growing concern going forward that how my data is getting used. So we wanted to protect that privacy of the user. So from my experience there, we can definitely tell that open access um, technology definitely works. And not to mention that we as a user always ask ourselves that why our cell phone bill is so high here in the United States. Europe is not that high. Why US is high? Well, the reason it's high because I worked in both 4G deployment phase and 5G. 4G started approximately 2009 for all the cellular companies here in Arizona. By 2014-2015 timeline, we completed 100% 4G LT deployment here in the United States for all the carriers. Within two years, we moved into 5G. Now we are and replacing all those equipment we did, and now we are putting it back. So at the end of the day, the cost basically get passed on to the customer. 
if we go into a system where we have the hardware in place, we don't have to go through this kind of massive modification of the existing cell site, just update the software, that can change the game significantly. And that will create the affordable broadband and cellular connectivity here in the United States. Having saying that, from a state broadband perspective, we are not, we are encouraging this type of technology to make internet affordable for uh, for our citizens here in Arizona, but we are also open for anyone who will provide us a feasible financial and economical uh, project for our project area, how we will deploy the big funding. What What's a good first step into the migration to open networking? I think to start with, start using the equipment and software, as Kelly mentioned, which is friendly towards the upgrade. You don't have to go through a massive upgrade. I, I have a family member who actually have a MacBook, but he doesn't like OS, uh, Mac OS, he uses um, uh, Windows. So it, the, the need is there. We just need to find the balance between the need and business case here. So one of the things that we did, that's a great question, Steve. One of the things that we did is we have a lab and it's actually in Long Beach where my technical director is. And they can actually dial into the lab. Dial in. That tells you how long I've been doing this. <laughs> right. Like that. You can log into the lab and you can test IPI software. Right. So, so they can start to get a level of comfort instantly by playing with the software. And then we can go through a POC with them, point, um, a proof of concept, you know, long before they do deployment. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, we understand the process on how to migrate them from point A to point B and, and make sure that they you know, understand, oh, this isn't as scary as you think it is. Again, 10 years ago, it was. It wasn't. But now we've we've really got it dialed in, right? Are you, are you using digital twins on the hardware side um, so that when they dial in, not only can they use the software, but they can get familiar with the hardware? So, yeah, we've probably got about 10 different brands of hardware in the lab now. I think he's got three racks. Okay. So if he needs to move the IPI software onto a different rack, I mean, there's hardware specs that you have to adhere to for running their software too, right? Um, and also, depending on what they're trying to do, again, is this cell site gateways and router, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, we we literally can, and he's typically there when he's not on the road with me, traveling around to customers, right? He can help them log in and they can, I mean, they don't need a lot of time, right, to actually go in and go, oh, okay, this is all right. I see it. I'm good, right? Now let me test some protocols and start doing, okay, that'll convince them to go to the next level and do the, the POC, yeah. right? Well, I think we only have four minutes left. Yeah, so let's you want to take us home. Let, yeah, let's talk about just briefly, if we could. I think we've hit a lot of high notes for the key wins that that are taking place to bridge the f- efforts of the digital d- digital divide. What other key wins do you have? And then also, what are some of the challenges that we haven't discussed that we need to overcome? Um, from my standpoint, I mean, I think it's all partnership. As I said, this this is a billion dollar funding. The timeline is short and we have to deploy this network because it's it's a law. It's not a choice at this point that we can leave some household behind. So the perfect partnership between our local government, tribal government, government agencies, and the biggest driving factor, companies, vendor, equipment provider, and ISPs all need to come together and work. That's why if you look at the bid uh, no for or guidance. It's all about a stakeholder engagement. It's 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 very less. I wouldn't say less. It's it's focuses equally the, on the finance and technology part and also the stakeholder engagement. So broadband office is ready to hear from anyone and everyone, and we are open for any kind of partnership. So please feel free to reach out to us, and we'll make sure that your voice is heard during this whole planning process. 
Tandeep, you may have to explain what a NOFO is to our um, audience. Sure, it's it's the guideline notice of funding opportunity. So if you go to broadband um, uh, ntia.gov, it's basically part of U.S. Department of Commerce. They are responsible for deploying these billion dollars, uh, forty-three billion dollars for for the for the states and U.S. territories. There are guidance. There are timeline. There, I, I worked in three different uh, federal broadband funding. This is the most articulated, well put together, and really within the compliance guidance. And it's the, the best program I have ever worked on before in my in my life, funded by federal government. Uh, in all, most of the cases, we get the money, and then we set the timeline and guideline right. and everything. This is basically, we know how much we are getting, but until we go through the whole planning process, we are not able to access the money. Other comments? So, you know, you can go to our website. Uh, epsglobal.com, www.epsglobal.com. And we have an ISP landing page. I mean, we're that's how dedicated we are to this whole ISP initiative and, and helping with this. So, yeah, I mean, that we, that'll kind of get you started. We've got regional managers throughout the country, obviously. If anything, in Arizona, it'll just come to me and, and they can ask more questions. Typically, then I go get George, <laughs> go director. Here, you talk to him and he'll yeah. help him out. And then we go get Kelly and her team and um, Said or somebody like that on on their side, and we get you know get some calls going together, and again try and determine the the protocols and where they're trying to go and help them. Mm-hmm. Kelly, other yeah, other wins and challenges. Yeah, I was going to say that's right because you know our opportunity and challenge together is general awareness. So oftentimes we do not have the luxurious marketing budgets. So our brand isn't as well distributed around the industry. So what we bring to the table is as soon as we have success lighting up the community with connectivity, we like to announce it. So we like to announce our customer wins. And that's what we've been doing together with EPS Global over the past couple of years to show it can be done. Here's how we did it. And here's the success. Very cool. By the way, we can help amplify that too here in Arizona when those when those lights go on so please let us yes, know yes let us know i'm ready to write i'm ready right. to write good we're ready to write and ready to celebrate this has been a fantastic conversation and we're really appreciative of all three of you with giving your time and your expertise today you've been listening to AZ Techcast brought to you by Phoenix Business Radio X with Arizona Commerce Authority and of course Arizona Technology Council Today's AZ TechCast was brought to you by Arizona Commerce Authority, the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. So we again always appreciate Arizona Commerce Authority when we're here in the studio once a month. If you're interested in being a podcast participant or a sponsor of the council's AZ TechCast, then contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to learn more about opportunities to further position you as a tech expert and influencer and an innovator. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thank you for joining AZ TechCast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of AZ TechCast with Arizona Technology Council, featuring leading tech and business experts that help influence and shape our great state and the industries they serve.